Please open your Bibles once again to the book of Ephesians as we continue to look together to this marvelous ascension epistle. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 19. Before reading, let's bow in prayer. Our Father, we ask that your word will go forth with great power into our hearts, that we would be determined as your people even now to set aside every distraction and to give ourselves fully to understanding what this text means and how it applies to our lives. Father, the minister is nothing, but Christ is everything, and we pray that Christ will be exalted, that the ambassador who preaches the word of the king will be faithful to bring that word, but that the king himself will be exalted in our midst. Humble us, Father, under your mighty hand as we now come to your word. And for those among us today who do not know Jesus Christ, who shed his blood to save sinners, we pray that many would come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Open our minds and hearts now to your word. Teach us deeply through the work of your Holy Spirit and through the ordained means of the reading and preaching of your gospel. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning with verse 11. This is the word of God. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh call the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access and one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. People of God, it required a great deal. It required the infinite sacrifice of the Son of God, Jesus Christ our Lord, his shed blood in order that we might be reconciled to the Father. Oh, what sinners we are, what rebels we are, and only Jesus Christ could have done for us what has been done, making us now one with the God that we once hated, giving us union with Christ, and enabling us now to fellowship freely with the Father. But I get ahead of myself. This is the great theme of the text, and here we find two truths about reconciliation, and I want us to go immediately to them. The first truth about reconciliation is this. Christ is our peace with God. Christ is our peace with God. But he says, in order to underscore this, I want you to remember, you Gentiles who once did not believe, 
writing there to the Christians in Ephesus, I want you to remember that you once were strangers and aliens. I want you to remember that there was a time when you did not know him at all. And so he wants them to remember, and it is good for us to remember the pit from which we have been dug. It is good for us to remember where we were before we came to Christ. He says in verse 12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. He says we were once without Christ. We were Christless. Is there any statement more awful than this, that a person can be said to be without Christ? In their pagan experience, they were without Christ. As we saw in the text last week, they were dead in their trespasses and sins, dead spiritually toward God, incapable of recovering themselves from their fallen estate. And there down the road was the great temple to Diana. And if you think it was a beautiful sight and a wonderful thing, think again, because the most vile practices in heathendom were associated with the worship of this false goddess. They were without Christ. But also it tells us that they were stateless. Look again. You were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You were stateless or nationless. No citizenship among the chosen people of God. Those things that make a people God's people were not true of us Gentiles before coming to Christ. The Apostle Paul in Romans the ninth chapter speaks of the blessings that came to Israel as a nation. They are Israelites, he says in Romans 9.4, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But none of these things were true of them or of us before coming to know the Lord. We were nationless. We were not a part of the people of God, not even externally. But also, not only were we Christless and stateless, but we were friendless. The word here really is xenoi. Xenoi means strangers, but it has to do also with friendship. Aliens to the covenants with their attending promises. Not only were we strangers, not only were we not God's friends, but we were, God says in other places, his enemies before Christ came to shed his blood for us on the cross. We were strangers to the promise. We were strangers to the Christ. Ultimately, what the covenant of grace is all about is friendship, God being a friend to his people, and we were strangers to the covenants of promise. But not only that, he goes on to say in verse 12 that we were hopeless. Hopeless. We had no hope. We were without Christ. Hope is the promise of a certain future that when Jesus comes, all is well with us. Hope is that truth, that reality that sustains God's people all the way to the grave. So that we may say, even when we face eternity, I have a sure and certain hope of the resurrection. I have a sure and certain hope of being with Christ when I die. When the great J. Gresham Machen was on his deathbed, His last words that are recorded were on a message, a telegram that he sent to Professor John Murray saying, thank God for the act of obedience of Christ, no hope without it. Do you have such hope in the world? 
Horatius Bonner wrote these lines, men die in darkness at your side without a hope to cheer the tomb. And isn't that true? Men die without a hope to cheer the tomb. When we do not know Christ, we are hopeless. But not only that, he says that we were atheos, from which we derive our word atheist. We were godless. We were without God in the world. Here we were in this fallen world with all of its dangers, and we were without God in the world. Oh, surely they as pagans worshipped many false gods, but they had no personal saving knowledge of the one true God through Christ Jesus our Lord. And so this was true of the Ephesians long ago, and it is true of us when we are outside of Christ, that we were Christless, stateless, friendless, hopeless, and we were godless. Indeed, we were in a desperate condition. But he saw me plunged in deep distress and flew to my relief. And the text goes on to tell us that the alienation between God and us has been removed. And so we read in verse 13 these marvelous words, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, far from Christ, far from his people, far from salvation, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We in Christ Jesus, again the reference to union with Christ that we see throughout this epistle, we now are different because we have been redeemed. And so he says, but now. Do you remember in verse 4 last week where he said, but God being rich in mercy? Well, now he says, but now. Things are different than they once were. Everything that we see in verse 12 has now been reversed. Were we Christless? Now we have Christ. Were we once outside of the people of God? We are now a part of the people of God. Were we without a friend in the world and was God our enemy and we were his? Now we are no longer strangers to the promise, but we are friends with God. Were we once hopeless? Now we have a sure and certain hope that will sustain us even in death. Were we without God in the world? Now we have a knowledge of him personally because of what Jesus did when he shed his blood on the cross. The entire list in verse 12 has now been reversed because God's wrath has been appeased. We are no longer enemies, but we are friends with God. Now the remarkable thing always when we think about reconciliation is this truth, that we are the sinners and the initiative coming to save us is God's initiative. The sin was ours, but how remarkable, God took the initiative And when we really consider what it means that we were fallen sinners and how deeply we were ingrained in our sins, that we were rebels against God, and that in chapter 5 of Romans verse 10, we are spoken of as God's enemies, that Christ came to die for enemies, then would you not agree that reconciliation is a marvel indeed? The most remarkable truth In Romans chapter 5, verse 10, the Apostle Paul speaks of it in this way. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Now the word that the Apostle uses in Romans 
is the word ekthros. It means that we were enemies. But now back here in chapter 2 of Ephesians, in verses 14 and 16, we read the word hostility. If you'll look, it says, For he himself is our peace, who made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And again in verse 16, And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. It's the same word that the Apostle Paul uses in Romans 5.10 for enemies, except here in the feminine form, ekthra rather than ekthros. It denotes mutual hostility, ill will, hatred. And what the Apostle Paul wants us to see and understand and to grasp within our souls is that we were God's enemies because of our sin. Do you see? If you have not trusted in Christ who shed his blood, the scriptures say, I'm not inventing this, this is what the Bible says, the scriptures say that you are God's enemy, that you are a rebel against him. And so we were God's enemies because of our sin, and he was our enemy because of his holiness. Yet, here's the marvel, God who had every right to send each and every one of us to hell because we were rebels against his law, because we had offended his infinite justice and holiness. This is the God who bowed down the heavens and who sent his own son who willingly came into the world, the second person of the Trinity, in order that he might go to a cross and shed his blood and pay the penalty that you and I deserved to pay forever and ever and ever. And this, I think, is a marvel. This is truly remarkable. He reconciled us. And may I remind you again, it was no easy thing. That the Holy Son of God, assuming human nature, would bear in his own body and soul on the tree the sins of all of his people through all of the ages. That he would bear that which was detestably ugly to him, infinitely ugly to him. And that our penalty might be paid because our guilt was transferable to Christ. This is truly a wonder and a remarkable thing. And so he says in verse 13 that those far off, and that was us, wasn't it? That those far off have now been brought nigh, brought near. Now, if you were listening to the passage in Isaiah 57, then you heard this this morning. God says, Jehovah says in Isaiah 57, 19, peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. There's the prophet Isaiah who enters into the very courtroom of God to receive his message. And what is it that he hears God say? Recorded for us by divine inspiration in Isaiah 57. God said, the prophet heard God say. God, who had every right to punish us eternally. God said, peace, peace. Peace to those far. Peace to those near. Peace, peace. 
is the heart of the Father toward you, believer, and toward me. And so we find that God's purpose and plan was to bring peace to his people. And so we read in verse 18 that it's a Trinitarian plan. Remember how we saw that in chapter 1? Well, in verse 18, for through him, that is Jesus, we both have access in one spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, to the Father. That's the Father who chose us and sent his Son to die for us. The entire Trinity speaks peace to your soul for those who are in Christ Jesus. And through Christ's blood we have peace, objective peace, because God's wrath has been once for all removed through the finished work of Christ. Turn over to Colossians. You don't have far to go. You go from here to Philippians, then Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 through 22, where in this twin epistle to Ephesians, as it is sometimes called, we read in Colossians 1.19 these words, For in Him all the fullness of God, that is in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And so you see, through Christ's blood, we have been reconciled. And the apostle says, this also means that those of us who were barred from the inner sanctum, who had no right to come into the presence of the living God, now we have free access. That all of the do not enter signs have been removed. And rather than that, we have these signs saying, welcome believer, welcome, welcome into the very presence of your heavenly Father. And so he says in verse 18, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, which you sang just this morning in those wonderful words from our hymn in the final verse, my God is reconciled, his pardoning voice I hear, he owns me for his child, I can no longer fear, with confidence I now draw nigh, with confidence I now draw nigh, and Father, Abba, Father, cry. You have access to God, free and full, because you are now reconciled to God. Do you even use the privilege? Do you see how much he longs for you to come into his presence and to seek him in prayer? Christ then, Christ is our peace. And so we read in verse 14, for he himself is our peace. And if you had your Greek New Testament open in front of you, you would see that the pronoun is first. Altaskar esten he erene hemon. He himself is our peace. The stress is on the fact that the person of Jesus is your peace. You are trusting not only that what he did for you, he did for you. You are trusting the person 
who did this for you. Christ is your peace. You now may have a relationship, a personal saving relationship with Jesus Christ, for He personally is my peace. Your trust is to be placed in His loving, caring person. So the Apostle Paul says, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, but not I, but Christ lives in me, and the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Do you know him personally? Can you say he loved me and gave himself for me? Objective peace which is the basis for your subjective peace, your assurance of faith. But there is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked, we read in Isaiah 57. Is your trust in Christ? Do not wait for all of the questions to be removed. Someone has said, when a complex key fits a complex lock, you cannot prove mathematically that the key was made for the lock, but you know it all the same. And when the Holy Spirit, as the key, opens your heart and saves you for Christ's sake, you'll know. So Christ is our peace. And God's love, don't you agree? God's love is remarkably and profoundly demonstrated in that while we were yet sinners, indeed enemies, Christ died for us. O love of God, how strong and true, eternal yet ever new, uncomprehended and unbought, beyond all knowledge and all thought. We read you best in him who came to bear for us the cross of shame, sent by the Father from on high our life to live, our death to die. And so I say it again, Christ is our peace, he has reconciled us to God, And I hope that you know, it was no easy thing. How could a holy God, infinitely holy, absolutely pure God, have a relationship with sinners stained through and through, indelibly? Indelibly except for the removal of it by grace. Mr. Spurgeon put it this way somewhere. Glory be to the wondrous wisdom which discovered the way of blending vengeance and love, making a tender heart to be the mirror of unflinching severity, causing the crystal vase of Jesus' loving nature to be filled with the red wine of righteous wrath. He, He is our peace with God. Second truth, Christ is our peace with man. His cross is the basis of reconciliation between people. And so he emphasizes here the relationship between Jew and Gentile in verses 14 through 16. Let's read these verses again. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one who has broken down in his flesh the wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man. Read their humanity and you'll get the point. One new humanity 
in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And so imagine yourself in the first century AD and there is this dividing wall, spiritually speaking, between Jew and Gentile. The Jew and the Gentile had nothing to do with one another. The wall in the temple is what he is referencing here. That's the picture that the Apostle Paul is referencing. The wall in the temple which shut out the Gentiles from the enjoyment of the worship of God with the Jewish people. You remember in Acts chapter 21, the Apostle Paul actually was accused wrongly of bringing a Gentile into that court beyond the wall which forbade the Gentile to enter. And it caused a riot. And this was the beginning of all of the trials that finally led Paul to go before Caesar and eventually led to his death. So there you were in the great temple. And on the wall was written what Josephus calls the law of purity. And here were the words on the wall. No foreigner may enter within the sanctuary and enclosure... Anyone who was caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. Now, I'd say that's hostility, wouldn't you? Yeah, you Gentiles, you come into this, beyond this point, then you have yourself to blame for your death. You're just a Gentile dog. You come beyond this point, and you will deservedly die. And what the text is telling us is, don't you see... When Christ Jesus came and shed his blood, not only did he remove the hostility between God and man and man and God, but he removed the hostility between believing Jew and believing Gentile. A remarkable thing when you stop and consider what that meant in the first century A.D. How did he do this? He says, by abolishing the curse of the law, that is, by meeting its righteous demands which he says in verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Paul in Colossians 2.14 says something similar when he says that he has forgiven us our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And so the law of God came with all of its perfection, holy, just, and good, demanding obedience for salvation, and no man could do it, and we all had broken it, and the penalty must be paid, and when the penalty was paid, we were reconciled to God, but also Jew and Gentile were now reconciled who believe in Christ one to another. Therefore, Jew and Gentile both have access. Notice how he puts it in verse 18. For through him we both, that is Jew and Gentile, both have access in one spirit to the Father. Not only may, spiritually speaking, the Gentile now enter beyond that wall into the court that was meant for the people of God broadly, but now in Jesus our high priest we can actually go into the holy of holies because Jesus is there with his shed blood for us. And therefore God has done something completely new that was unheard of in the world. 
He has made one new humanity of Jew and Gentile who belong to Jesus. To put it the way he would in Romans 5, we are no longer in Adam, but we are all now who believe in Christ in the new Adam in union with Jesus Christ. And so there's something new. Verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself, it's his creation, his doing by grace, created himself one new man or humanity in place of the two. So making peace. And the word he uses here for new is very important. There are a couple of different words, but the word here is kainos, and that means qualitatively new. There's something new under the sun, people of God. God and man reconciled through the blood of Jesus and Jew and Gentile reconciled by the blood of Jesus. So that he says, and this is a very good translation in your ESV in verse 16, he killed the hostility. Yes, the hostility between God and man, but the hostility between believing Jew and Gentile producing one new humanity in Christ. And my friends, this is the power of the cross. This is the power of the cross. This all seemed impossible, didn't it? It all seemed impossible that God and man could be reconciled. Whoever would think it? That Jew and Gentile could become loving brothers and one church of Jesus Christ? That's a phenomenon that they had never dreamt of. It is a subject, the reconciliatory work of Jesus by the shedding of his blood. Brothers and sisters, let me tell you, I try to plumb the depths. But it defies exhaustion. I try and try and try and try, and it simply defies exhaustion. And the result, verse 19, so that, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Or as Paul puts the matter in Romans 11, the Gentiles have been grafted into the one tree of the one people of God. So what of verse 12? Well, these things just aren't true of you anymore. Separated from Christ? Oh, no. Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel? No, no, no. Strangers to the covenants of promise? Oh, no. Having no hope without God in the world? Oh, we're filled with hope, and we know him. We know him through Christ personally. Well, you say, Pastor, that's a great thing. It's a wonderful thing to know that I can be reconciled to God through the blood of Christ. And a wonderful thing to know that Jew and Gentile have been reconciled. What does this have to do with me on Monday? Well, let's begin some pointed applications, may we? Just a few. Reconciliation is cosmic. All things ultimately reconciled through Christ's blood, we're told in Colossians. And if reconciliation is cosmic, that means that nothing in my heart or yours, nothing in my life or yours is outside of the Lordship of Christ. It's all purchased by Jesus' blood. Your body, you don't own your body, it belongs to Jesus. Your soul, your thoughts, your actions, your attitudes, no, it's all under the blood. It all belongs to Him. So reconciliation is a gift but reconciliation between us is also a task based on that gift. He says in chapter 4 of Ephesians, verse 3, 
that we should be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. That says to me that on the basis of the gift, we also are called to a task of maintaining and growing that unity, nurturing unity in the church of Jesus Christ. In other words, because Jesus shed his blood to reconcile us to God, we are to live together as those who are reconciled to God. What separates you from another? Sin. What reconciles you? The blood of Jesus. And so you see how the gospel defines relationships. We hear a lot about relationships and very little about the gospel. It's all about the gospel, folks. So let's give some concrete examples. Here's one. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 3, verse 11. We could see something similar in Galatians, but we'll only look here. Colossians 3, 11. The Apostle draws out an implication of this when he says in Colossians 3.11, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ all in all. What's he saying here? These Greeks, which would have been despised by the Jew, the Jews that would have been despised by the Greeks, Circumcised, uncircumcised, the barbarians, those who, are, those who are not Jews, Scythian, those who were considered the lowest in society, slave-free. No, no, he says, don't you see? It's all about Christ. He is all in all. And because of what Jesus has done for us, everyone who believes in Jesus Christ has the same spiritual privileges. Every one of us. And so there's no place for raising barriers between one another as children of God. What does this mean for us? It means that as a believer, you should say, I don't care what is the color of your skin. I don't care what your background may have been. I don't care whether you have much or whether you have little. It doesn't matter to me whether society lifts you up or whether society doesn't. It doesn't matter. These things no longer matter. Every spiritual privilege belongs to every child of God equally. I must care for one thing, and that is to know Jesus the King and that we know him together. Every believing congregation should be a place that anyone from any background, anyone who has little or much, anyone, no matter the color of his skin, can come and we together love Christ together. We worship him together. We live in unity together because Jesus shed his blood and purchased us from our sins. Does that make sense to you? If Jew and Gentile were brought together, that's how it applies to us. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones reminded me of a little story, well, not personally, in reading. He says uh, the old terms and categories no longer apply. He says, you may remember the immortal story connected with old Philip Henry. Now, Philip Henry was the father of Matthew Henry, the great commentator. Philip Henry, as a young man, fell in love with a young lady who came from a very much higher position in life than himself. She was also in love with him. Then the question came of getting the consent of her parents, and the parents, turning to their daughter, said, This man, this Philip Henry, where did he come from? 
In other words, we're up here in the societal scale, and he's way down here in the societal scale. Who is this guy anyway? And she said, I do not know where he has come from, but I know where he is going. And that's the thing. It is not where he comes from that matters. Where is he going? Is he destined for glory, for God, for eternity, in the presence of Christ? Does he belong to him? That is the only question. And so it doesn't matter, people of God, what your background may be. All that matters is, do you know Jesus, and are we together on our way to our heavenly inheritance? Do you remember in Acts chapter 10, where Peter, before going to minister to Cornelius the Gentile, that God lowered in a vision this sheet that was filled with things that the Jew considered unclean, and God said, arise, kill, and eat. Do you recall how that was repeated? And that the point was... What God has called clean, you may not call unclean. And he went and ministered to the Gentiles, and the Holy Spirit fell on him just as that had fallen upon the Jew, because God was calling sinners from the Jewish and the Gentile portion of the society to trust in Jesus Christ. The one God has accepted should be accepted by all believers because we have the same spiritual privileges. That's one application of being reconciled through Christ's blood. You know, by the way, this should have been powerfully preached in churches uh, in the, say, the 1960s, for example. The church should be saying these things. Society, Society doesn't understand what real reconciliation is. We have no excuse But then there is another application. Homes, marriages, and children. Wouldn't you say there's room for application of reconciliation there? Or do you have a different kind of home than most people here? Something that I hear very often. I'm singling no one out. I have no one in mind. I just hear it a lot. Is a wife or a husband saying, I don't love her anymore. I don't love him anymore. I'm talking about Christian people. And when that happens, the problem is you've forgotten. Did God love you when you were lovely? He reconciled you when you were an enemy, didn't he? Folks, love is a choice. Love is a choice and one that those whose hearts are reconciled by Christ's blood can make. So with husband, with wife, with children... We should frequently go to one another, and just as we keep short accounts with God, we should say, I'm reconciled by the blood of Christ, and so are you. Therefore, will you forgive me on the basis of the blood? Will you forgive me because Christ is our mutual reconciler? What about your relationships with brothers and sisters in Christ, particularly in this congregation? Let's look at a couple of passages in Matthew chapter 5. We are told in Matthew 5, verse 23, Jesus is talking about the sin of hating one's brother. And he says in Matthew 5:23, "If you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you." Now it doesn't say you've done something against your brother. 
It says your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Matthew 18. Just to read verses 15 through 17. Matthew 18. Matthew 18, 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses even to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. The whole point being... On occasion, the scriptures teach that because we're reconciled through Christ's blood, we may need to go and be reconciled to a brother or a sister in Christ. And on rare occasions, very firm confrontation may be needed, such as in Galatians 2.11, when the Apostle Paul rebuked Peter to his face because he refused to eat with Gentiles and thereby was setting aside the very gospel of acceptance that he preached. And he was very firm with him. You know, the idea that we enter conflict easily and readily is not consistent with the gospel. I'm sure you've known people, maybe someone here is one of those kinds. You argue about everything. Everything becomes a contest. You enter easily into conflict. The gospel says that's not right. But it's also not right to avoid confrontation when God's glory demands it, when the gospel calls us to. And if we are one in Christ, let's do all we can to live as those who are one in Christ. Years ago in my student days, I remember a young man who was working in a Korean Presbyterian church. And uh, he was working on the pastoral staff. And a Mrs. Toh came to him. Mrs. Toh had had a falling out with one of her sisters in Christ in the church. And they had reconciled. They had talked. They had made up. They had asked forgiveness. They had reconciled. When Christmas came along, this woman that Mrs. Toe had been angry with gave her a blouse to wear. And when she got it out, she found she couldn't wear it because her heart was filled with animosity toward this woman. So she came to this pastor. You know what the pastor said? The pastor said, Mrs. Toe, you get that shirt out. You wear it. You wear it until you can go to this woman And tell her that you love her and thank her for her gift. That was good pastoral counsel. I don't know how many times she washed the shirt. I don't know if it wore out. But it was good pastoral counsel. If we are one in Christ, let's do all we can to live as those who are one in Christ. What are we saying when we refuse to be reconciled to a brother? It's tantamount to saying, you aren't going to heaven. If you refuse to be reconciled to a brother or sister, it's tantamount to saying, I know Jesus didn't die for you. I know you're not reconciled to God. That's what it means. 
It's tantamount to saying, you aren't accepted by God, and so I'm not going to accept you either. James Denny, the Scot, said, There is no problem of reconciliation too hard for the love which has borne our sins at the cross. Do you believe that? There is no problem of reconciliation too hard for the love which has borne our sins at the cross. If Christ became a curse for me, then I may curse no man. Christians, we are called in our relationships to know nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And the power to forgive can come only from the cross. So I ask you, have you forgotten what it means to be freed from your debt? Are you like the man further on in Matthew 18? Are you like the man who had been forgiven a debt that he could never have paid? And when he was forgiven, he went out and he found a man who owed him just a few cents. And he took him by the neck and choked him and said, pay me what you owe. Have you forgotten what it means that your guilt was washed away? Have you forgotten that your sin was transferred to Christ and his perfect record to you so that you are fully accepted by God? If God fully accepts you, then you and I must fully accept others who trust in Jesus Christ. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. But now let me speak to my lost friend who may be here this morning. I don't know who you may be. You don't know Christ. Verse 12 is for you at this point. You are separated from Christ. You are alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise. You have no hope and you're without God in the world. But listen, 2 Corinthians 5.20 essentially says this, because reconciliation has been achieved, now the message of reconciliation goes to you today. Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Believe in his willingness to be reconciled to sinners. No one who comes to me I will cast out, Jesus said in John 6, 37. Mr. Spurgeon told a little story that grips me. Let me give it to you. He's talking about those who say, if, but, I don't feel like coming to Christ, that wicked questioning of Christ. He said, a lady came to see me after a service in the tabernacle and asked me to pray for her. She had been before to speak to me about her soul, so I said to her on the second occasion, I told you very plainly the way of salvation, namely that you are to trust yourself in Christ's hands, relying on his atoning sacrifice. Have you done that? She answered, no, and then asked me whether I would pray for her. I said, no, I certainly will not pray for you. How's that for pastoral counsel? She looked at me with astonishment, and she again asked, Will you not pray for me? No, I replied. I have nothing for which to pray for you. I've set the way of salvation before you so simply that if you will not walk in it, you must be lost. But if you trust Christ now, you will be saved. I have nothing further to say to you but in God's name to set before you life or death. Still she pleaded, Do you pray for me? No, I answered. 
Would you have me ask God to shape his gospel so as to let you in as an exception? I do not see why I should. His plan of salvation is the only one that ever has been or ever will be of any avail. And if you will not trust to it, I am not going to ask God anything. For I do not see what else is wanted from him. I put this question plainly to you. Will you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? I certainly was somewhat surprised when the sister said very deliberately, If it be so, then, that salvation will come to me by believing, I do believe what the Scripture says concerning Christ. And moreover, I feel that I can trust myself with Him because He is God, and He has offered a sufficient sacrifice for my sins, and I do trust myself to Him now. And I feel such a strange peace stealing over me at this very moment. I have trusted Him, and I am certain that I am saved. And in an instant she said to me, Good evening, sir. There are other people waiting to see you. And away she went, like a common-sense woman as she was. And she was often told me since how glad she was that I refused to pray for her and so brought her to the decision to trust Christ for herself and thus to receive the assurance of her salvation. Well, I doubt if you come to me if I'll say I won't pray for you. (laughs) But I will say, look away from yourself and look to Jesus. Look away from yourself and look to Christ. Look away from yourself and look to the reconciler. Look away from yourself and trust the one who shed his blood to save us sinners from our sins. And might it not be that this is preached to you right now by God's appointment And when God is reconciled, let me tell you, it is a perfect reconciliation. There is not the least grudge in God's heart to anyone who trusts the value of Jesus' blood. None. Never. Trust in Christ as your peace. Come, be friends with God. And God's people said, Amen.